to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Happy New Year, everyone, and what an interesting and exciting year this will be for the United Nations, because the new year marks the semi-official kickoff of the race to select the next UN Secretary General. Ban Ki-moon's second and final term expires at the end of the year, and now it's up to the world, or I should say more specifically, the Security Council with input from the General Assembly, to find his replacement. On the line with me to discuss the likely candidates for the next Secretary General and the diplomatic intrigue that will surround this whole process and provide a great deal of subtext to diplomacy at the United Nations this year is Richard Gowan. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you'll be well acquainted with Richard. I believe this is his third time on the show. He's a fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations and the Center for International Cooperation, and he teaches at Columbia. He's also out with a new piece in The American Interest, taking a look at U.S. priorities at the U.N. during Obama's last year in office. And at the end of this conversation, we discuss that piece. But we kick off and devote most of this episode to the big question of who will replace Ban Ki-moon and how that selection will be made. And we start by discussing what's known in U.N. circles as the, quote, Bulgarian primary. Just a quick note before we start, as always, you can get in touch with me at globaldispatchespodcast.com or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg if you have suggestions of people I should interview, topics I should cover, any other questions you might have for me. And a big thank you to those of you who have sent in your suggestions. I'm going through those, I'm researching them, and looking forward to learning from the people that you recommended I reach out to. And now here is Richard Gowan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, there are a large number of potential and declared candidates in the race to replace Ban Ki-moon at the moment. But there's a lot of focus on two women. Uh, both from Bulgaria. Um, Irina Bakova, who is presently in charge of UNESCO in Paris, and Kristalina Georgieva, who is a European commissioner in Brussels. They're both serious candidates, and I think the media has latched onto them because there's a lot of interest in the idea of a, a female candidate, and there's a real sense that those two are going to have to fight it out to be the you know the, the the Bulgarian in in the wider race so it's, it's a primary as it were for for the Bulgarian mm. uh, the Bulgarian duo and that is the first fun political story I think of the of the race to replace Ban and so it's it, it and it's interesting I mention. mean I mean to me the the clear front runner 
from the start, from from you know, the, the last couple of years, has been uh, Irina Bakova because she is already the head of a UN agency, and because uh, one, she's she's a woman, and and as you mentioned, there is this general sense that it's a woman's turn to become the next uh, secretary general of the UN. Although there's there's no like universal consensus on that notion. I think there's strong pressure. Uh, that the next secretary general should be the first female secretary general. Um, and she's sort of well liked in the UN system. Uh, she's already, you know, she's already headed a UN agency. So she's already gone through that kind of vetting. Uh, and she's from Eastern Europe. And then there's this other sense that it's sort of Eastern Europe's turn. Uh, but then you have, uh, uh, Cristalia Georgieva, who also is a very well-known, well-liked, well-respected, competent female from Bulgaria. And she uh, is also sort of in the race. And and what advantage, what comparable advantage in this sort of so-called Bulgarian primary does one candidate possibly have over the other? Well, let's step back for a sec. Why is Bulgaria putting forward two serious candidates? That's the first question we should ask. And the reason for that is deeply political. To become the next Secretary General, you have to have the support not only of the U.S., uh, Britain and France, but also of Russia, which has veto power in the Security Council. And of all the former communist states of Eastern Europe, the Bulgarians have the closest relations with Moscow. So there's a sense that if a credible Bulgarian can be found, then that individual is, you know, has a has a lot of leverage in, in the race. So that's why the Bulgarian primary is of political interest as well as of, of media interest. Of the two candidates, they're both impressive. As you say, Bakova has been uh, a name in the race for two or more years. She's had a very, very tough job running UNESCO in Paris. UNESCO is a especially dysfunctional UN agency, and it's come under a huge amount of US pressure because um, Palestine was elected as a member. And I think both the American observers and non-American observers feel that Bakova has, has handled those challenges uh, pretty well. Georgieva uh, has not worked for the UN, although in addition to her EU time, she worked for the World Bank. But she has an extremely good reputation based largely on her period as the EU humanitarian commissioner, when she did a really impressive job um, over five years of focusing European attention and European money on forgotten crises like the conflict in the Central African Republic. And she, she really dug around and found extra cash for humanitarian issues uh, during the worst years of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. So That's how she was on my she, radar, I should say. She only came on my radar as the humanitarian chief for, for Europe. I hadn't really known her before that. She, she has a good reputation in the World Bank. She was the bank's representative in Moscow. So again, she has uh, links into the Russian elite, which may be useful for her. But I think her name is creating some good feelings in the UN Secretariat because she's understood to be a, an action-oriented a person uh, with a strong managerial and, and fundraising background. And after Ban Ki-moon, who's not really action-oriented and not really a great manager, someone with that profile is, is evidently appealing. But I should say that we're focusing on Bakova mm -hmm. and Georgieva at the moment. There are others. And, 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 the history, the history yeah. of UN races shows that the early leaders uh, uh -huh. very, very regularly 
fall out of the race in the final the final year. So it's quite possible that six to nine months from now we'll be talking about a fundamentally different set of uh, of names. So can can I ask why would Russia be so positively disposed to both these candidates? I, I don't know Georgieva as well, but I know Bakova, for example, speaks you know fluent Russian. It's probably like her second language, but as long as she also speaks like eight other different languages. I've I've interviewed her a, a few times, um, but you know, she strikes me as someone who's fundamentally like liberal minded and a, a kind of progressive. And as someone, frankly, if I were Vladimir Putin, I would be sort of afraid of because she could speak perhaps directly to the Russian people in ways that other secretary generals could not. And she's certainly not like the authoritarian that, um, that, that, uh, Putin is. So I'm, I just, I'm, I'm other than the fact that, you know, they are theoretically have close ties or can understand perhaps the Russian perspective better. I would feel slightly threatened by having someone with such an international profile um, who is one, a liberal and two speaks, you know, fluent Russian. The Russians are realists. They know that they're not going to get an authoritarian secretary general. They, they understand that they could put forward candidates from places like Belarus or Australasia who might be very, very closely aligned with interests, but the US would shoot down. So I think that in Moscow, there's a, a good understanding of the fact that ultimately the next Secretary General is still going to be a westernized liberal figure. But what Russia really wants is to have that extra degree of understanding and, uh, frankly, a bit of control over the, S- the SG that comes from being the big power in their, their neighbor at home. Mm-hmm. I think that the Russians feel that Ban Ki-moon, because he comes from a country, South Korea, that is deeply, deeply connected to the U.S., has been too much America's man all the way through his time in office. And the Russians have objected quite strongly to the way that Ban deals with the Kosovo crisis and other more recent crises. So what Moscow wants is someone who, when they really tug the lead, uh, they will have um, serious leverage over. And as I say, Bulgaria is very close uh, to um, to Russia economically still, uh, you know, even though it's a member of the EU and so forth. And I think that Russian intelligence officials and Russian diplomats probably feel that they um, uh, they have a better grasp on how to get what they want out of a Bulgarian candidate than they would out of say, a Baltic candidate or a Polish candidate who might be more stridently um, pro, pro-Western. And so will this... But, so, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. But, you know, we, we're seeing... Uh, you know, there's a very wide range of Eastern European candidates. There are a couple of uh, Slovaks in the mix. There's Vuk Jeremic, the former foreign minister in the mix. Uh, there, are, there are others, the... I think the Croatian president is 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 a name that we've heard. Mm-hmm. Danilo Turk, a former president of of Slovenia. You know, the list goes. The list goes Vesna, on. And on. Vesna Pusinic um, is the the other one, the the Croatian foreign minister from, right? from Croatia. Yeah. Yeah. And and there are many others sort of lurking uh, lurking in the wings, um, wondering whether to to take the plunge. So you know, there's going to be no 
frankly, there's, there's going to be no shortage of Eastern, European, Eastern European candidates coming forward, and all of them will be attempting to play this game of balancing between the West, um, you know, the liberal UN that we've seen built up over the decades, and, and Russia's desire for just that extra bit of control over the institution. Um, so can we talk a little bit ab about process here? I mean, you know, in any large bureaucracy, process sometimes influence outcomes of decisions. I think that relationship between process and outcome is particularly closely intertwined at the UN to the point where processes can often dictate outcomes. Um, so how th – there are some changes to uh, the process of selecting the next secretary general. Uh, how could, first, can you explain those processes, what those changes are, and two, do you think they will have any meaningful impact on uh, the ultimate outcome? So there was a real sense of disillusionment back in 2006 when uh, the U.S. It was actually John Bolton as ambassador at the time, stitched up the selection process and inserted Ban Ki-moon into the UN. Uh, over candidates such as um, Shashi Tharoor from India, who frankly had a higher profile and probably greater appeal. And, and ever since then, a lot of states, including uh, countries that, that strongly favor the UN as the institution, um, have been hoping for a more transparent process in, in 2016. And there was a big push uh, coordinated with a civil society movement called One for Seven Billion last year, uh, demanding transparency and insisting that the, the permanent five members of the council shouldn't just uh, get away with another stitch up. The permanent members of the council have maneuvered. They have made a number of concessions. Uh, Britain in particular has coordinated a, uh, the P5's position on this. And what they've said is that it, it will be a more open process. There will be effectively uh, US-style hearings with the candidates later this year. And the hope is that uh, that will increase transparency. It will allow all the candidates to um, uh, to put their case um, for for membership. Looking beyond that, there's also a hope that it will be possible to wrap up the selection process reasonably early uh, to give whoever is successful time to um, to prepare to take office. In, in some previous years, uh, SGs have had very, very little time indeed um, uh, to, to prepare to take over. So the idea is that it should be a more efficient, more, more transparent process. And I think the what goal is, is what, by, by June or July, to have at least a, a number of candidates named and submitting to these kind of formal questioning by member states? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, I think these are real concessions. I think that it will definitely focus more attention on, on the process than existed in the past. But I think what is also clear is that while uh, the, the P5 have made some uh, some real concessions, uh, they are still going to be the ones who make the final decision. And in essence, they've 
yeah, they've relaxed the process. They've opened up the process a bit, but they've retained their right mm-hmm. to um, to select the the woman or man that they want at the end of the day. That has not been changed. Because I mean, basically, in years past, it has been just closed door consultations and horse trading between the P five, and then the P five coalesce around one single candidate and present that candidate to the general assembly, who rubber stamps it. But this year, while you still are going to have a degree of that backroom dealing, at least the uh, candidates that are named. Uh, are vetted in some degree before uh, they are presented to the General Assembly? Well, it makes it harder to choose a really ludicrously bad candidate. Because if someone goes out into the... um, out into these hearings and just performs very, very badly, then, you know, even those brazen members of the P5 are going to to think twice about pushing for that person's selection. So I think it, it, it... there's an important filtering role, um, and that is uh, that is a positive development. You know, on the other hand, I think we should say that there are there are a lot of there are a lot of candidates on the roster at the moment who will be able to handle handle these hearings well. Um, it's not clear that any of them is going to seize the day and just stun everyone with such good performance that they become SG. So my suspicion is that the hearings will be useful, but even after the hearings, there'll still be quite a lot of um, candidates in the game and and room for diplomatic. Um, So how likely do you think it is that an Eastern European is going to be the the final candidate, uh, the the next SG? I mean, there has been some rumors, and there's like no shortage of rumors around the UN among who might be the next Secretary General or who might be wishing to be the next Secretary General. But two names I've seen, two big names that I've seen uh, are former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd and former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark, who also serves as the head of the UN Development program. Both are obviously not Eastern European. Um, do they even stand a chance? Rod is constantly shifting over whether he's running or not. Helen Clark has been pretty openly running for for a while. You know, if you went back a year or so, I I think there was a, there was a sort of strong feeling around the UN that the Eastern Europeans could try to um, to find a candidate, but because of the very, very obvious differences between Russia and the West over the you know the future of the UN, that ultimately no Eastern European candidate would be mutually acceptable uh, to to Moscow and to the West, and it would therefore be necessary to open up the race to to other groups. And that was what I think Kevin Rudd may have been betting on, Helen Clark may have been betting on, and a number of Latin American candidates are also known to be in the mix on the assumption that uh, Eastern Europe will will simply fail in the attempt. And, and one of those, I should say, includes Michelle Bachelet, the former head of UN Women and president of Chile. Yes, although the fact that Bachelet decided to return to Chile to run for a a new term as, as president some years ago suggested that she was at least partially withdrawing from from the race. I agree with that. Now, I think um, I think what has changed over the last year is that the Russians have been absolutely consistent, saying that they want an Eastern European, and there is a, a real sense that although 
there is no clear cut cut winner from 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 eastern europe um there's there's a higher chance of um uh russia and the west settling on on someone from from europe than we had initially thought and the non european candidates um may simply have bet wrong on uh how how the process would unfold one one thing that i i find quite interesting on a sociological level around the UN is that for the last 10 or 15 years, the UN has not been closely involved in European security or or Eastern European security other than a few cases like Kosovo and Cyprus. And that means that a lot of UN officials and UN analysts don't actually know very much about the Eastern European candidates for SG. They know much more about uh, African politicians or perhaps Latin American politicians. And I think there's a certain sense of confusion in the UN Secretariat that they might find themselves being uh, run by a European again after um, a decade of of Asian leadership and 15 years of of African leadership beforehand. So this is, I think this is one reason why the race is so hard to call, that a lot of UN officials and UN insiders don't have a very strong sense of who the uh, the main Eastern European candidates are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd actually just, I mean, I, I'm a, a UN observer and not necessarily an insider, but I, I agree with that. I mean, um, the only real candidate I know is Bakova by virtue of the fact that she is a UN official, you know, and that I've like, you know, I've, I've interacted with her, I've spoken to her, but I don't know any of these other, I couldn't tell you like the first thing about any of these other Eastern Europeans. Now, there's an argument that that could be a breath of fresh air, uh, that actually what you need at the UN is someone who can bring a sort of a new sense of strategic purpose precisely because they are um, disconnected from the organization. They're not sort of trapped in some of the bad habits of the organization. Equally, I remember people saying that 10 years ago about Ban Ki-moon. There was a feeling back in 2006 that Kofi Annan has had many strengths, but in some ways he was too much a man of of the UN machine. He'd worked in the organization for almost all his career. What we needed was an outsider who would bring fresh insights and a new way of doing business with, with big powers, and that was going to be Ban Ki-moon. Uh, to be absolutely blunt, uh, it hasn't really worked out that way, and Ban has, you know, managed to get some achievements under his belt, um, such as the Sustainable Development Goals and the Paris uh, climate change deal. But no one would say that he was an all-time great SG. So there's also a risk that now we'll see the big powers settle on an Eastern European figure who doesn't really understand the UN Secretariat and will take a few years to to come to terms with it, just as Ban did. so, so just to, to wrap up this part of the conversation and lead into a, a, another, I want to talk about an article you you've recently written in uh, the American Interest. You know, you have you know at least half of this decision uh, is going to be the United States uh, as to whether as to who should be the the, the next Secretary General. I, mean, I guess officially it's one fifth of the decision is the United States, but really it's probably about fifty percent uh, America's call who becomes the next Secretary General. So going into Obama's final year as U.S. president and Ban Ki-moon's final year as secretary general, what kind of U.S. Uh, priorities can we see being exerted uh, at the U.N. during this this final final year of both men? Well, let's just touch on 
what the US may want in the in the selection of the next Secretary General. I think it's absolutely clear that um, President Obama and Ambassador Power here in New York are very keen to choose a female um, Secretary General as a, a legacy for for the Obama administration. And I think that's going to be uh, that, that's going to be a big theme in the U.S. approach to this race. On the other hand, Obama, I think, faces some pretty serious challenges at the U.N. in this final year in office. The first of those challenges is trying to get some sort of deal uh, on on Syria that the UN could, uh, the UN Security Council could authorize and then potentially UN peacekeepers could support. Uh, that will be exceptionally hard. It's going to be even harder due to the breakdown of relations between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran. So I think you'll, you'll see uh, the Obama administration investing quite a lot in US processes over Syria over the next year, trying to, to close out the crisis before the president leaves office. And the Security Council will be central to that. Simultaneously, as I argue in uh, the American interest piece that you mentioned, um, the U.S. and its friends are, are working flat out to prop up the U.N. humanitarian uh, agencies such as UNHCR and the World Food, Food Program because the sheer scale of the humanitarian crisis in the Middle East coupled with uh, serious crises in Africa has basically overwhelmed uh, the entire humanitarian system. And humanitarian agencies are running after money uh, for their operations that simply isn't there. And there's a real sense that we're going to see repeats of what we saw in Syria last year, where, for example, the World Food Programme had to cut off rations to um, hundreds of thousands of refugees because they did not have the resources. And my sense is that over the next year, in addition to focusing on the political dimensions of Syria, Obama is going to have to show some real leadership on saving the international humanitarian system. Now, I, I wrote that in uh, this piece for the American interest uh, back in November. It, it actually came out just before, just before Christmas, and by chance on the very same day, uh, the U.S. announced that President Obama would be convening a summit of other world leaders in September on the refugee crisis and how to strengthen the humanitarian uh, the humanitarian system. So I think my, my hunch was uh, was proved right. I think that we are going to see the U.S. focus very, very hard on how the U.N. helps the neediest over, over the coming year. And the U.S. is consistently the largest donor to these humanitarian uh, agencies like the World Food Program and, and UNICEF, but the scale of the problem is just so obscenely yeah. immense. I mean, what is it like the 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 at the end of the year, OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, puts together a, an appeal to project their needs going into the next year, and this year, in 2016, they've projected something like 20 billion dollars. Uh, which is like five or five times what it was just like four or five years ago. Yes, I mean the the number was the number was twenty billion. It diplomats point out that uh, UN agencies always announce very very high figures for their financial needs because they expect to have to bargain down. But I've spoken to a wide range of of diplomats about this and. 
they're not really that grudging anymore. They say that they, you know, they see the UN system creaking. They know that it needs the resources. So um, it's a it's a real challenge. And as we saw over the last year with the refugee crisis in the Mediterranean, if if the UN agencies cannot assist refugees and displaced people. Uh, then the crisis will will simply spread further and further. So I think that's very much on the minds of uh, of, of U.S. officials. It's a different focus to last year when the, the the focus was on Iran, which was high level elite politics, and then on the climate change summit, which was an incredibly complex multilateral process. Obama got what he wanted out of both of those processes. Um, you know, those were real strategic successes for the president and for the UN. Uh, this year, when it comes to UN affairs, Obama and his aides need to focus back down, I think, on the the working level and the, the nitty-gritty of assisting overstretched humanitarian workers in the field. All right. Well, Richard, thank you so much, as always, for your time and your insights. And it'll be so interesting to see how this uh, race shakes out in 2016. Thank you very much. Um, I'm sure we're going to be discussing it at least once more this year. We got to. We have to. Well, I'm jazzed up for 2016 at the United Nations. I hope you are, too. Um, love this conversation. You know, we kind of nerded it out a little bit on UN insider stuff. But I feel like by you know talking at a nerdy level about UN processes, hopefully you out there who are not maybe not quite as into the weeds at the UN might still get something out of this. I, I'm pretty sure you did. I, I always learn from Richard, and that's usually a pretty good barometer of whether or not other people are learning from guests as well. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Oh, yes. Also, please do consider leaving a review on iTunes if you've not done so already. Thank you. Bye again. Bye.